Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. The shares of Ford Motor Company, they are higher by nearly 3% after the company says it's going to get rid of its sedan production in the United States, except for the Mustang. Here to tell us about the company and its investment prowess is David Kudla. He is founder, chief executive and chief investment strategist for Mainstay Capital. Uh, David, thanks very much for being with us. All right, so you've got, uh, uh, you know, what, $2 billion under management. You get a call from a customer and they say, all right, they heard that Ford is cutting costs. They're getting out of making uh, loss-making sedans. And uh, they tweet to you at David underscore Kudla, and they say, what should we do? Should we buy Ford stock? What do you say? Well, we have been neutral on the auto since, domestic auto since peak auto in 2016. What's interesting is we've remained on a plateau essentially between 17 and 17 and a half million vehicles. So I think with uh, you know the news that we have on uh, the cost reductions coming and the the transition, a very big transition uh, from cars to SUVs and trucks, uh, Ford is an attractive stock right now. So you'd recommend to buy? I'd recommend to buy Ford. If you remember Ford earlier this year, you know during the correction in the overall market. Um, sold off pretty steeply, and along with a lot of the stocks, but even uh, had a bigger sell-off. But we think, yeah, we think right now uh, the autos are looking very attractive. All of them. You know, this is what I want to get to. So how much uh, are we seeing some sort of rebound from a lot of bad news baked into Ford shares? Uh, how much has the overall backdrop of slowing sales, higher uh, costs of metals that go into the production of these vehicles and uh, basically challenges across the globe from uh, competing automakers? How much has that backdrop changed? Well, what's interesting say with let's take Ford and GM the commodity prices are definitely affecting uh, the input costs when you look at the first quarter Ford had almost 500 million in uh, an increase in commodities costs GM 700 um, we also see the tax reform will be good for for those companies uh, as we look forward though what, again what's interesting is is where we've traditionally had this this economic cycle with autos the ramp up, we reach peak auto, come back down the other side. We've called for this plateau, and that's what we've seen. So they're continuing to, to make cars, make cars with uh, a, a, a ratio that's biased more and more towards trucks and SUVs, the most profitable. David, uh, if you had to choose between uh, GM, Ford, and uh, FCA, Fiat Chrysler, do you choose one or do you buy all? I actually would choose uh, Fiat Chrysler right now, and the reason is the transition that GM and Ford are making right now, and Ford made a a very bold statement about this, uh, that they will be by 2020 only making the Mustang and the Focus crossover vehicle, but uh, Fiat Chrysler has already done this. They've done this over the last two years. They're in the process. They're on a cadence converting four plants from 
car production to truck and SUV production. So we've seen that stock, you know, do very well, and they're really the very well positioned right now already with uh, that that bias towards truck and SUV production over cars. All right, CB, you're recommending uh, FCA instead of uh, putting money into Ford or putting money into uh, into My GM. top pick would, right now would be FCA. Okay. Yes. Um, what effect do you think that NAFTA trade talks are going to have on investments in the auto sector? Uh, it, it's still hard to tell because it's, it's such a complex equation about how the uh, you know, parts move from between the three countries, uh, when they get integrated into the car, where the car is eventually made and shipped. But, uh, you know, overall, net-net, it will be bad for the autos because it will, it will disrupt the supply chain and, and potentially add costs. And that is just, just parts moving within the same company or, uh, you know, or those parts from suppliers. David, uh, I want to turn our attention a little bit to the credit side of things. Uh, auto loans, the total outstanding has surged over the past eight years. Now it's starting to get more expensive to borrow given the increase in short-term rates. I'm just wondering, did any of the companies, have they addressed their concern about uh, sort of rising credit costs, crimping demand? Well, there's only, there's only so much they can do. We buy cars in America we buy cars on credit. That's how cars are bought. So, you, you know, your, your question is, is a very good one and is of concern to the autos because we see the cost of credit, the cost of, of, uh, cost of money is rising. It's certainly rising. And, uh, you know, we've seen what's happened to the, the amount of credit that, that we have in, in the car industry. So that is one concern we have as we see the 10-year bond uh, now has not only touched 3%, but moved a little bit behind a little bit above yesterday and we think rates continue to go up cost of credit goes up that will eventually start to take uh, have an impact on uh, on the way that we buy autos in the US and and it will have a adverse impact Thank you so much for joining us David Kudla founder chief executive officer and chief investment strategist at Mainstay Capital coming to us from the auto capital of the nation uh, in Michigan Deutsche Bank, another year, another pledge to cut a vast amount of their staff. Joining us now, Yalman Onoren, senior finance writer for Bloomberg News. Yalman, we've heard this before, Deutsche Bank reporting results and saying uh, that they're going to significantly curb their presence in the U.S. and Asia. Do you think that this time will really uh, be the time when they do make the thousands of cuts that they're basically implying with this statement? You know, one of my favorite books is called This Time is Different by a <laughs> um, couple of professors who, who tried to explain why we keep ending in financial crises and looked at uh, about 200 crises in the last 500 years. And every time everybody says, this time is different. We're, gonna, we're not going to end up in crisis. And things aren't going to fall apart. We did it better. We have a new paradigm and we end up in crisis. Um, so... I don't, I, it's hard to believe this time is going to be different because Deutsche Bank has been saying these things over and over, over the last many years. Um, and they don't, and they don't deliver. I mean, this is the third CEO. Um, 
And, you know, the, the previous CEOs have come up with similar plans. As I keep bringing up over and over every time we talk Deutsche Bank, you know, two, three years ago, they said they're going to cut, cut 10,000 jobs in addition to getting rid of Postbank. They did not get rid of Postbank. They did not cut 10,000 jobs. And now they're saying they're going to cut jobs. So they've been, it's easy to say this, but it doesn't seem to be that easy to implement. And, you know, they one excuse is Germany. They, it's very hard to get rid of people. Okay. But they even bargained with the labor unions there and actually reached conclusions and actually were supposed to start cutting in Germany and that hasn't happened and and the non-German stuff I mean they could have done the non-German you know employee cuts before they haven't so they they just say and this time they don't even have details they don't even come up with a number like we're gonna cut x number of jobs they're like this is gonna be significant it's gonna be great it sounds a little bit like our president you know well, I don't want to go there. I want to go more into the details of Deutsche Bank. Why do you think they can't do this? They can. I'm not sure they will. I mean, that's the problem. But that's why? Been. I mean, is it because they don't want to ultimate? I mean, they got, what, a little bit more than 97,000 on record, 97,000 employees. What is preventing uh, the new chief executive, uh, Christian Saving, from actually making the cuts? Uh it- I don't know if anything is preventing them from doing it. So, so why why hasn't it happened under several previous CEOs? It, it, they've I've never heard a proper uh, explanation. As I said, you know, the, the typical excuse was, you know, in Germany it's very hard to fire people. Uh, but even it's it's hard, but it's not impossible. And there, all the time, you know, every every meeting, the the CEO or CFO or others other executives would say. You know, this is what we're doing with the, the unions. And eventually they actually reached the agreements with the unions. We reported that. Our people in Germany reported all that. And still they couldn't really get rid of people. So so I'm not sure what's keeping Deutsche Bank from, from implementing these plans that they announce over and over and over. And and, and this one doesn't even sound that significant. If, if the number, the only number they've given is that they're going to bring down the, the share of, of uh, corporate and investment bank, which is their big investment bank unit, uh, down to 50% from 53. That doesn't sound amazing. You know, I want to I want to broaden our, our our sort of view a little bit because Barclays also reported earnings that seem to demonstrate a shift toward taking on more risk and toward expanding its horizons. With Deutsche Bank, uh, even let's say that they do go through with their plan to reduce their footprint in the U.S. and Asia, would this crimp their ability to uh, get clients? in Europe and more locally in Germany because they don't have as broad of a reach. Possibly. I, I, as I, and again, uh, you know, we, we have, uh, all three of us have talked about Deutsche Bank before and, and as I bring it up before, um, they, it's, Deutsche Bank is an investment bank. Um, if they're now deciding to become a retail bank, that's not their DNA. It's never been their DNA. Plus, Germany, it, where their home base for retail banking is, where Postbank is, is based and, and their other retail branches, is completely overbanked. And there's no money to be made in Germany in retail banking. Um, so where, so I hope they're still staying in investment banking. I don't think they're getting out of it. As I said, 53% to 50 as share of revenue is really for me nothing. And and some analysts during the, the call earlier today in Europe 
uh, were were complaining that it's it's too little. They're not really doing anything. Um, they need to they need to recover their DNA in investment banking, which has been their core strength uh, for decades. Uh, they were the biggest European investment bank, and they've lost that title. They've lost to everybody. They've lost the U.S. banks' market share. They've lost the other European rivals' market share. So. Why and it's not about cost cutting. This is something else, and and that why they're unable to recover when even Barclays is recovering. Not even. I mean, but every bank, you you know, they went through all the European banks went through a couple of years of bad, you know, investment banking trading results. They they regrouped, they fixed, figured out where they're strong, and they managed to get back on the business. Thank you very much, Yaman Onorano, senior writer for banking and finance for Bloomberg. How to invest in the healthcare sector by lending money to healthcare companies, companies that are looking to create innovations in healthcare. Here to help us understand this market is Scott Lee. He is a principal with CRP, helping to manage assets of more than $3 billion. He joins us here in our 1130 studio. Scott, thanks very much for coming in. Maybe just give people a brief uh, history, a synopsis of CRP, because I know that one of your founders, Charles Tate, he stepped down from the firm, I guess it was last April 2017, and uh, Mr. Tate is uh, one of the names that people may know because of the famous uh, private equity firm, uh, Hicks, Muse, Tate, and First. Tell us about the company. Uh, sure. It, it, it's CRG, and uh, Charles was, was our founder and, and uh, still uh, our chairman emeritus, and we're, we're glad he's, he's uh, still part of the family. Uh, CRG is a, a healthcare-focused investment firm. Um, we invest across the spectrum of healthcare companies, from um, the most innovative uh, technology companies in, in healthcare to more traditional services companies. And, and we use credit as our tool to invest in those companies. Um, we, we have an unofficial motto that everything in healthcare takes more time and takes more money. And using credit as a tool does help us provide more capital and more time to companies. All right. Well, given the fact that you do a deep dive and you really do specialize in the healthcare industry, I'd love to hear your perspective on Walmart's potential acquisition of Humana and just how some of the biggest companies are thinking about managing healthcare costs. What's your take on this? Well, I think if, if Walmart does ultimately acquire Humana or uh, form a tighter partnership with Humana, it, it, it would be a brilliant move for, for Walmart. Um, when they when you think through Humana members, Walmart employees, Walmart shoppers, um, everyone in their ecosystem, um, they can have an influential role in directing where and how they get care, and then ultimately where they buy their uh, medications, which should be at all the Walmart locations around the country. Um, so, in in terms of managing healthcare cost, it's it's brilliant. In terms of uh, driving more volume into the higher margin. Uh, pharmacy segment for for uh, Walmart, and we shouldn't forget that Walmart is one of the biggest pharmacies in the country. Uh, it, it's brilliant on multiple levels. Wonder if you could use an example of one of your uh, deals, one of your investments. This is Dynavax, and you, or you could pick another one, but I just chose this because it's a big deal, and mm -hmm. it's about vaccines mm -hmm. for uh, hepatitis B, and I think it was a hundred and seventy-five million dollar uh, financing. And I'm wondering if you could just use that as an example to kind of demonstrate what it is you look for. And how do you go in to determine whether it's an investment that you believe is worthwhile? Yeah. Well, when we look at investments from a you know from a, a high level, we try to find companies that are addressing truly unmet medical needs, um, or are are bringing costs out of the system. 
Um, and so if you look at Dynavax, and it's a company we're very excited about, they have a very uh, novel Hep B vaccine um, that uh, is pretty differentiated relative to uh, the existing Hep B vaccines. They've got a, a very promising immuno-oncology pipeline as well. And so this is one where we, we truly believe they're addressing this unmet need. If you look at um, another another investment of ours is in a company called MD Live, uh, which is a telemedicine uh, company, a telemedicine platform uh, that enables patients or customers to access a physician, a counselor, a therapist, uh, a dermatologist online, and uh, and 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 a big part of that value proposition is they're they're reducing costs in the system by allowing people to access care when they need it. Um, not to let things fester and then access care too late. Um, and, um, and so that's, that's one where we really believe it's bringing costs in the system down. So since you focus on credit, I want to focus on the pessimism uh, that, that credit investors are known for. And I'm wondering whether there are any investments that you passed over or that you view as being uh, perhaps overvalued right now as the entire healthcare industry shifts to a very different model. Well, I think um, healthcare is no different than other industries where people feel it's a little, you know, the valuations are frothy. Um, but I think the valuations in healthcare don't quite move along with, you know, the broader economy or the broader market. Um, I, I wouldn't say there are particular investments that we passed over that um, that we would look at and say, "Wow, look at that valuation now." Um, there are always some that uh, that we wish we. Uh, we, investments we could have made. No, uh, I mean, on, I mean things that you're cautious about right now. Yes. Areas of the market that you think that you think could uh, see a real sinkhole in the near future. Well, in, within the healthcare uh, ecosystem, absolutely. You know, one thing we are concerned about um, uh, acute care facilities, for instance. Um, there is uh, quite a bit of consolidation happening in that in that field. Some of it. For survival reasons, as opposed for as opposed to have, uh, being for growth motivations, and um, it's uh, it, it's uh, in that industry we we as a country we're we're probably overbedded in terms of acute care facility. So there, there's there's consolidation that needs to happen. There's rationalization that needs to happen, um, and these are companies that tend to be pretty overlevered, and so that's for so many different reasons. This is an area that we're, we're staying away from right now. As a company that's focused on investing through credit, does it matter to you whether there is a big acquisition pipeline that perhaps, you know, big pharma companies or other medical uh, or healthcare companies are looking to acquire some of your, uh, your credits? It's, it's helpful from a few different perspectives. One, we, we, we love it when companies have both organic and inorganic growth opportunities in front of them. Um, it certainly, from a credit underwriting standpoint, makes things easier. Um, but then also, it, it's great when there are larger companies who could potentially acquire companies we invest in. Um, healthcare is always an active M&A market. Um, even during the recession 10 years ago, the most active sector tended to be, you know, aside from financial services, the most active sector tended to be healthcare. I'm curious about Amazon. They seem to have dampened some of the potential threat of them moving into the healthcare industry. From your discussions with some of these suppliers and smaller companies that you invest in, how real do they think the Amazon threat really is? I, I think, I think the threat is real. The timing is uncertain. Um, you know, we talked about Walmart, and I mentioned uh, driving volume to their pharmacies for low-cost, high-margin prescriptions. Um, I think with fairly reasonable effort, Amazon could be a big player in that market. Um, and create just another battleground with uh, with Walmart, and and so I think uh, Amazon's ability to 
be a, a major player and 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 really drive uh, volume to them is is real in many different segments of healthcare. Um, it, it's really a matter of when they think it's important to them. And just in one word or one phrase, which companies stand to lose the most if Amazon if Amazon gains a foothold here? I would say every PBM. Pharmacy Benefit Manager. All right, there you go. Scott Lee, thank you so much for being with us. Really appreciate your time. Scott Lee is principal of CRG, uh, which oversees about $3 billion in New York City. Remember, was it yesterday when people were worried about the FANG stocks? I think it lasted for about two hours. Evidently, they're not anymore because Facebook did fine and their shares are up uh, more than 9%. And here to explain why everything is rosy and wonderful again is Shira Ovide, Bloomberg Gadfly technology columnist who's joining us here in our 1130 studios. So we are going to be getting Amazon uh, earnings after the bell so we can hold our breath a little bit. But is 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 this it? I mean, did Facebook basically sound the all clear and everyone's like, ah, we were freaking out about regulation and it's fine? I think it was a little bit of a sigh of relief. I don't think we can say that Facebook is sort of in the clear and, and everything will be golden for the rest of uh, Facebook's history. Look, the fact remains that Facebook continues to be a revenue-generating machine. I was certainly surprised and impressed that revenue, the revenue growth rate accelerated in the first quarter, uh, which is pretty impressive for a company that already has 40 billion plus in annual sales. So that is certainly something to be impressed by if you're a Facebook stockholder. On the other hand, you know, there are some niggling points of worry that all of these data privacy scandals and misinformation scandals at Facebook, they're not going to have an impact on a, a business like Facebook right away, but they might slowly over time. So the two things that kind of bothered me was, first, um, Facebook posted its slowest ever rate of increase in daily users in the first quarter. Um, and that's something that slowed down really noticeably over the last six months to a year. So that's worth worth watching. And the other thing was Facebook used to give um, an average number of minutes that its users spend on Facebook and, and Facebook-owned properties every day. And the company doesn't give that number anymore, which I think is telling. It's obviously not going up or not going up very much. Should we shift to Amazon.com? Because Happy they'll be to. Re releasing their results uh, at, after the close of trading today. Uh, 100 million prime customers. That's a new piece of information for the quarter, right? Yeah, that's right. And what is going to be the thing people look at? Amazon Web Services? Are they going to announce where they're going to be spending more money? Are we going to have a new mobile Alexa in the home? <laughs> Maybe. Um, look, the the story for Amazon is always the same, which is the company sells a lot of stuff every quarter, and they will, I suspect, continue to sell a lot of stuff in the first quarter that ended in March. And the, the question mark is always about how much is Amazon spending on new and existing uh, business initiatives, and how much do investors care or not care about that spending? So, you know, Amazon keeps plowing ahead that they keep telling people, you know, we're spending a lot of money on things like package warehouses and on um, Alexa technology and on prime video programming and things like that. And sometimes investors notice 
um, and care about that level of spending. And sometimes they don't. And it's a little bit hard to predict um, which one it will be this time around. <laughs> What's the track record with Amazon sort of laying out their future plans? Because I know there's so many questions about you're shrugging and rolling your eyes at me um, at Amazon, uh, whether they're going to get to healthcare or what they're going to do with the Whole Foods kind of uh, empire that they've acquired. What are you expecting this time? So Amazon says almost nothing about its future plans. I mean, it's really... <laughs> and no one cares. <laughs> well, people care, but... Uh, there's nothing. I don't think there's anything anyone can do about it. That they're comically secretive about um, future projects, which is not not unusual. I, I would think um, they they have been talking a little bit more about Whole Foods recently, and you know, there's clearly this this vision that they hint at about trying to stitch together Amazon's various uh, kind of fresh food and and packaged food businesses. So right now, Amazon has this kind of jumble of food projects. So they own Whole Foods. They have Amazon Fresh, which is a 10-year-old plus uh, gross online grocery delivery service. They have um, Pantry, which is, you know, you buy a bunch of um, non-perishable goods on Amazon and get shipped in a box for a subscription fee. Um, they have Prime Now. You get uh, deliveries in um, a couple of hours or an hour or less. Again, that's often food stuff. They have a restaurant delivery service. And they've hinted at least a little bit in ways to kind of stitch that together and rationalize this jumble of food-related projects. Um, but I don't know that we've sort of seen all of that laid out directly. Let's do some Apple, right? You're concerned that the trends for Apple are not as favorable as they used to be. Yeah, well, we're now in this. So Apple reports earnings on uh, first, on Tuesday. Yeah. That's right, next week. And we're now in this period that seems to happen in the week or two ahead of every Apple earnings report of the last year, which is investors have gotten panicky about the trajectory, the potential trajectory of iPhone sales. So we've seen the last few days uh, companies that either manufacture iPhones or supply components for iPhones. A lot of them have reported a little bit of weakness in sales or forecasted sales. So Samsung, for example, said uh, yesterday that the particular kind of screens that it makes that are used in uh, the iPhone 10 models that it's it's seeing some softness in demand. Is that so, the organic light emitting diode? Yes, OLED for the the screen and nerds out there. And so it was another data point for people who are a little bit anxious about what iPhone sales are going to be maybe not for the March quarter that Apple's reporting on Tuesday, but maybe for the June quarter. So you're starting to see Apple share price wobbled a little bit the last few days. And then also um, the estimates from analysts have been pared back. And it's just more of this kind of anxiety about, you know, look what's happening to smartphone sales across the industry. They have slowed to a crawl. So have any analysts who cover Apple actually recommended to sell? That's interesting. I haven't looked in a little while. They're, it's not... They're bulled up and happy to go. Yeah, yeah. although they're getting less bullish over time, but I don't know that too many people are out on a limb saying so. I guess that my question no is... No sells. No sells. No, no sells. You got 16 holds and 28 buys. All right. So, well, I mean, a hold is sort of a sell by Wall Street. Great inflation. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess the reason why I ask is that, you know, at what point does a slowdown in smartphone sales translate into a sell signal? And at what point is that just, ah, eh, this might not be as much of a behemoth as we once thought? I think that's a fair 
fair question. I mean, look, the the smart thing that Apple has done is they've done a lot of things to offset this trend of slowing smartphone sales. They're charging higher prices for a lot of their phones. They're focusing on um, new kinds of either add-on hardware like AirPods, like the HomePod speakers, um, or their internet services business, whether it's Apple Music or other things. And those things can help offset revenue if um, unit sales of iPhones are kind of flatlining. So, you know, good for Apple for sustaining growth that way. Apple Watch? Um, Apple Watch, it's weird that a business like Apple Watch is almost a footnote, right? It's, look, definitely an important business. We don't know exactly how many Apple Watches are sold. Apple doesn't disclose it. But it's probably a five or six billion a year um, annual business, which is nice chunk of change for most companies, but uh, again, kind of a drop in the bucket for a company of Apple's size. Thank you very much. Shira Ovide, technology columnist, Bloomberg, a gadfly. Follow all of her comments and her uh, thoughts on Twitter at Shira Ovide. Coming up, we've got a Bloomberg politics, policy, power, and law with Amy Morris. Amy Morris, tell us what do we got to look forward to? The former Labor Secretary nominee has written a new book. We'll be talking with Andy Puzder. We're going to be listening. That's coming up right here on Bloomberg Politics, Policy, Power and Law. Thanks for listening. I'm Pim Fox, my colleague and co-host Lisa Abramowitz. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.